0: Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. And man, we took a long hiatus from recording, didn't we? I like taking Christmas off. That was not a bad thing. No, it was not. Yeah. It was not. But so many things have happened. I got so much to talk about. Oh, yeah, for sure. Oh, my God. Oh, my God.
1: Oh, my God. So you had a good Christmas then, friend?
0: Yeah, you know, well, Christmas for us this year because, you know, the girls are grown up and... They don't live with us anymore, and so they all have Christmases they want to go do. So it was really just boiled down to having a nice dinner on Christmas Eve, a dinner out. Nice. And we didn't, like, put up a tree or stockings or decorate or anything. It was just very, like, low you did stress. total empty nest Christmas. Absolutely. And it's the first. It was and the first, first real empty nest Christmas. And it wasn't sad. It was lovely. It Isn't was just great. As a 20-something away
1: from my parents' place and so forth, I remember putting up a Christmas tree that was actually a 7-Up bottle, you know, with a couple of balls hanging from it. Because, you know, it's green. That's something.
0: (laughs) You guys have 7-Up in Canada? Yeah, sure. And Sprite. We're like a developed nation. (laughs) It's not called something else like, you know, green
1: bubblies or... No. And we don't do the, you know, 7-Up is actually lemonade thing, which is bizarre.
0: Like, stop that. (laughs) <laughs> but anyway, regardless of Christmas, what's up with you, bud? Uh, so, yeah, there's so much stuff. Obviously, by now you've heard that I'm going on this worldwide road trip that DevExpress has evilly plotted for me. <sighs> uh, it's all about Blazor. And of course, you know, the, the latest .NET Conf was all about Blazor. Yep. And I learned a few things watching that, but um, and now I'm doing, you know, workshops and at, at conferences and we're going to do this tour that starts in uh in in February just coming right around the corner here and I found something for better know framework from .NET conf from Steve Sanderson that'll blow your mind nice hit me so roll the crazy music <laughs> All right, dude, what do you got? All right, well, you remember when we talked to uh, Sean Wildermuth about, um, quote, GPRC? Yeah. He kept saying, is GRPC, really? Yes. It is GRPC. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's
1: but not GPRC. Stop saying GPRC. It's not
0: the global, you know, Re-
1: People's Republic of China. That's not right. It's <laughs> exactly. wrong. No, that's not quite what that's it is. It's like it is. that, but
0: different. Well, anyway, so there's a GRPC that you can do in in, in all of that stuff, but Steve Sanderson showed off a way to use it with, you know, WebAssembly, client-side Blazor. Because, of course, he did. <laughs> Server-side Blazor, like, it's no big deal. You don't really need an API layer or anything like that because you're already on the server. Yeah. You can just call up your DB context and go to town with the database. You're, yeah. All your code's running on the server. Client-side, however, totally different. Mm-hmm. Oh, now I got to make a web API layer for everything I want to do with the database, and I got all those things happening. But it turns out that by using gRPC, not only is it easier and takes a lot less time to develop the interaction between client and server, uh, it's safer, it's strong, more strongly typed, like you don't have URLs and stuff to worry about, you just have one service that's shared between client and server, and the, all of the classes are generated automatically from the proto file. And best of all, it's more performant because of the binary format nice that grpc uses and i remember talking to sean and thinking yeah that's kind of neat but you know we've heard stuff like this before yeah okay well i'm i'm convinced i'm so you know what my litmus test is for any new technology that does this kind of thing right oh yeah sure the file uploader yeah of course how long is it going to take me to upload a f- to write code so i can upload files that's reliable that's restartable like you have a
1: high bar for what you want out of a file uploader yeah exactly Um, 30 minutes, 30,
0: 30 minutes to write all the code from scratch. First time you saw it and you had to work the file uploader.
1: Yep. And
0: no limit on the length of the file or anything like that. It's, you know, your basic chunked file upload algorithm. And I've done it a million times in different ways, but this was just like, uh, uh, you know, blazer makes me really productive with UI Mm -hmm. and add GRPC to that. And it makes me it, over the moon productive with going back and forth between client and server, and nice. it's more performance. So, I might say bye bye to web API for any greenfield projects that I'm doing in um, client side. Blazer, that's interesting. And uh, we're, I'm also going to add in the show notes a link to Steve Sanderson's blog post about how to do it.
1: Yep, I you know I, I just finished the session selections for the Spring Dev Intersection. That's the week of April mm-hmm. 6th in Orlando. Go to Dev Intersection dot com to register today yeah uh, and uh you know the, one of my best gauges is is the sessions that get submitted so you can you can tell when a technology has turned a corner because mm. you just get bombarded and right. let me tell you how many blazer sessions got submitted like
0: all oh wow
1: <laughs> yeah uh, <laughs> lot the, uh, all, and
0: i believe i did the first one in
1: las vegas <laughs> yeah yeah right back in the day so yeah, it's it's hot stuff. Yeah, it's very interesting to see what's going on. But mostly server-side, right? Like they the, the conversation on client side is not as
0: Yes, ser- server side is baked and but but guess what? Client side is coming in May. Interesting. And it'll be completely in the framework in .net 5. So that's only November. I mean, but May, it's going to be baked. It's yeah. going to be shipping and, and you're
1: super optimistic to say November for what they're talking about getting done for not net five I, let's let's not fool ourselves <laughs> yeah could be a little bit later yeah. might but, be you a, know might be a, a a community preview or something but there'll, there'll be stuff coming along but yeah there'll I'm be stuff all right that's good stuff dude yeah that's what I got okay who's talking to us Richard grabbed a comment off a of show 1621 which we did about a year ago February of 2019 with Claire mm-hmm. Sudbury when oh, we were yeah. at NBC London you remember Claire she was awesome. Yeah, from ThoughtWorks, she's, uh, you know, a a former high school teacher, but, you know, totally focused on teaching. In fact, this, the talk we did with her was the teaching experience developers and also right. had that teacher energy, like just the warmth and, and oh, yeah. you know, it's a great show. If you haven't listened to it, 1621, all in, right? Great, awesome topic. And Adrian Pella, this comment is this from about a year ago. He says, hi, Carl and Richard. That was a great show. Thanks to Claire for the insights on teaching and learning. And also for the shout-out, I guess he mentioned Adrian in that. Back in All the right. past, I used to be a computer science lecturer, and this reminded me of how much I actually enjoyed teaching. And I haven't had nearly as much opportunity as a largely independent developer for many years. Later this year, we're going to be moving to a completely new area in the UK, and I'm going to find opportunities to get back into teaching somewhere. Elementary school, high school, university user groups, where's the greatest need? Which, that's an awesome question. Yeah. Uh, and I guess it's also the question of, are you going to teach because you want to, you know, make a living from teaching, which I tend towards at teaching adults as they tend to have more money um, versus when you're teaching kids. Uh, you know this, and I think a bunch of other people know this, that I make a point of doing middle, sc- talking to middle school kids at least a couple of times a year about STEM careers in general. Right. Uh, just because I think, that's the moment of greatest impact. You know, they're yeah. at, they're at an age where they haven't decided on their careers. They're still very much, oh, "What do you want to be?" And you grow up, and, they, and they're yeah. just sort of all over the map. But if you can influence them then, with the the potential of technology and the opportunities that are coming down the pipe. Uh, you, you really have a chance to do something. So I guess it's really a, a question of your motivation. Like, why do you want to teach? It's a, and that you know opportunity to help the, somebody, to help them move forward in a career, or even to consider a new career. So I think that's pretty powerful stuff. Very. Uh, so Adrian, thank you so much for your comment. A copy of Music to Code Buy is on its way to you. And if you'd like a copy of Music to Code by, write a comment on the website at com or via any of the social medias. Well, just Facebook. We publish every show to Facebook. And if you comment there and we read on the show... We'll send you a copy of Music Code by him.
0: But you can also follow us on Twitter. I'm at Carl Franklin. He's at Rich Campbell. Send us a tweet. And uh, Thomas will get another .net rocks mug. <laughs> <laughs> I did the math right away.
1: I, I pulled up the tools. Uh, there's like 50 comments from Thomas over over 10 years. Have we really sent him 50 mugs? No, we have not. Because nobody's oh. got quite that many. But I suspect he has a few.
2: I, I yeah. have at least two right here that I can link together. <laughs> Don't break them. There's oh, no more. Uh, okay. No, no. Uh,
0: make that one. No, make.
2: That- <laughs> no. I, I, I have I have swag plenty. So Fifteen. swag a
0: plenty. Well, let me uh, uh, formally introduce you, Thomas. Thomas Betts first wrote "Hello World" at age six in Basic on a TI ninety nine slash four A. Love it. That's a calculator, right?
1: Mm, that was that was uh, Texas 16-bit. Instruments' little computer.
0: Yeah. yeah.
2: Okay. 16-bit Texas Instruments, PC. Yeah. Yeah, okay. I wrote some games uh, for it back and in And he's day. been
0: professionally developing software for over two decades as of now. He prefers working on the .NET platform and is certified as an MCAD.NET charter member and an MCSD.NET early adopter. Thomas has worked in a variety of industries, including retail, finance, healthcare, defense, and travel. Or if you ask his mom, he, quote, does something with computers, end quote. Yeah. I don't really understand, but he does that computer
1: thing. Yeah, remember my daughter is- thought I worked at the airport because they took me to the airport and a week later when they came back, I was still there. <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah. Where are you going? <laughs> Work. <laughs> my daddy works at the airport. It's <laughs> a big office. <laughs> Thomas is also the lead editor for architecture and design at InfoQ and a track host for QCon London. He lives in Denver with his wife and son, and they love exploring beautiful Colorado. And uh, welcome to your first time on .NET Rocks. Well, you. Can you imagine That's
2: that? Took, a, what, 1,600, 700 episodes? Finally something, got on? Yeah, something yeah, like that.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, sorry we've, about that. We've been, I, we've been doing our best, man. It's yeah. hard. It's not that you haven't had anything to say either. I mean, it's purely at our feet. Yeah. Yeah. But you, know, you, but you have been a
1: regular contributor to the show for a long time, right? I think yeah. I have read a bunch of your comments there. They're usually, quite often, very thoughtful. Like, just the, yeah. their good thoughts around what we're what the conversation was.
2: Yeah. It comes from having good episodes that really spark the creativity and make you want to ask a few more questions. Well, thanks. Appreciate it. Yeah. That.
0: yeah. All right. Enough with the love affair. Yeah. Right. <laughs> now go ahead. You can continue with the love affair. Go, yeah, it's bring on. it on. It's <laughs> on. Now we got to talk about the perfect education for a software developer, uh, and the reason I know that is because that's what the title is. <laughs> so, what is the perfect education for a software developer? Look, well, calm side degree for sure. Right.
2: Right. So this is one of those things that gets discussed uh, over and over, especially when companies are going through a hiring process and you're trying to evaluate who is that person we want to bring in and you're trying to fill out a, a job rec. And it seems like sometimes you put in, oh, we need a four-year comp sci degree or something equivalent or they start listing off programming languages. Like, oh, we need someone who knows C-sharp and Java and Kotlin and Go and and 17 years of Blazor experience or whatever the latest thing is. Um, but you always see those few lines that have what sometimes it's lumped to soft skills. Oh, they need to have good, strong communication skills and be a critical thinker. And mm. every job you apply for and everyone that you need to go to as a software engineer through your career, that's what carries with you. The languages may change. The platforms may change, but, right. um, that it's that core, um, those core skills that sometimes aren't associated with STEM. In fact, they're associated with the liberal arts and, uh, I think you, you know you guys can probably relate to sitting in a high school math class trigonometry or whatever, and somebody says, when are we ever going to use this in real life? <laughs> right, sure. <laughs> right. But then you get to college, and people go in, and the tables kind of turn. It's the same question, I think, under the covers, but you get someone who's going and getting a major in uh, philosophy or history or English, and they say, who's ever going to hire an English major or a philosophy right, major?
0: Right. Why would you bother to get smart? Why would you do that?
2: Well, and that's the point is that you see STEM as these career education tracks. Right. I'm going to go to get a, a degree in biology and I'm going to become a biologist. I'm going to get an engineering degree, I'll become an engineer. Mm. A liberal arts degree doesn't give you a job as a liberal artist, it prepares you to be a member of a free, liberated society. That's where the
0: right you'll be a liberal artist, but you won't. That won't be
1: your job. Yes. And you'll also say, do you want fries with that? Right. Of course. That's the first thing
2: they teach you. We'll come back to my Mike McDonald's and Starbucks joke later. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, But I think if you look at what what's the purpose of liberal, a liberal arts education, it's to teach you things like communication, mm-hmm. uh, critical thinking and problem solving, and how to be a lifelong learner. So you can solve the problems of today and help solve the problems of the future.
0: This is why I like um, algorithms because they're so language agnostic. And, f- you know, for me, like we were talking about in the intro, the, the file uploader is an algorithm that I know so well because I've done it so many times that when it comes to, oh, I see how that maps to this technology, I can really judge the technology based on, you know, my experience implementing the algorithm. So it doesn't really matter what it is, but that's a, you know you you probably should know something like that if you're going to dip your toes in all these other languages and technologies,
2: right? Because it helps to have some basis. Like I'm going to take the same concept and how do I explore and understand this new language or this platform? You're switching yeah. from Azure to AWS. Or are you going to try and do something that you've done 15 times before, and right. now you're going to do that same behavior, but the tools are different? So you're you're not going to flow through it like you have with all that past experience, but you still know I can solve the problem the same way. I just need to learn this new skill.
0: And often we're learning the algorithm and the language or the technology at the same time, you know? So it kind of makes it a little more difficult because it might be a little bit hard to separate out where where things land in your brain. Unless you're Richard Campbell, he has an automatic sorting filter. Yeah. He can just... But I, you but I think just put you put things away. You pr- bring up a really powerful point,
1: Carl, But one of the sim th- th- signs of an experienced developer is they've separated algorithmic thinking from the mechanism of writing code around those algorithms. Yeah, they they are two different things. There are core algorithms you're going to use over and over again, and you're just looking at how do we implement it in this technology.
0: Right. But I agree with Thomas too that uh, you know the the other skills, such as critical thinking, probably the biggest one. Makes you a a really good developer.
2: Yeah, because I think the, you know, I've seen people ask the question of why do we distinguish between a job title that says programmer or developer or engineer? And in my head, I've always stacked those up that the programmer is someone who just knows how to write code. Like they can create the algorithm and they know all that low level stuff, but you can't come to them with this big open-ended question and say, solve the problem. That's the top of the stack. And in the middle is that developer where you can still do a little bit of design, but you're somewhat constrained because some of the the path has already been defined for you. The engineer is you have to engineer a solution. You don't have anything. They say, here's the problem, figure it out. And the answer might use software, or you might decide that software isn't The best solution we should change the business process instead
1: do we throw the architect in here too just to make it more complicated
2: i i don't see the architect as the next level up i see it to the side okay so just like you're building uh, a building if you're designing a house and you have an architect and a general contractor the engineer the engineer does systems and puts all the stuff together the architect has that bigger vision of how those the system breaks down into individual components what's the overall design and architects focus on uh, cross-cutting concerns. Like, how, how do we make sure that the um, the the electrical for a high-rise, you know, translates through all the floors or something. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, my experience you know, having built a few
1: houses is you spend a lot of time with the architect coming up with a design, and then you pass it over to an engineer who qualifies it, will we'll sign off on it, given that it's compliant with various codes, design-wise. And then you still have builders who actually build it, and they have different trade skills. And then you still have folks that actually approve, that look at it at various stages of construction and sign off on it, um, which I also see as an engineering discipline. You know, sort of they actually validating is that correct? Like, have you built this the right way?
2: Right. And then the role of an architect, sometimes the architect is a key member of the team, and sometimes it's that um, off to the side, throwing over the architectural requirements, sure. especially in software. Um, And that gets to, again, one of those three points of a liberal arts education is communication and working with others is fundamental. And whether you choose to have that architect embedded with the team and updating the architecture as the design evolves, or you say, we're going to do all the architecture first and throw it over. Right. And then they figure it out. Um, I think, you know, one of those over, you know, very big generalizations that people like to make is that every problem is a communications problem. Yeah. No, I've
1: said that there are no software problems. There's just marriage counseling. (laughs) Like we know the team, we know the technology can do it. We're trying to figure out why the team is struggling. Right. That's that's sort of the issue.
2: That idea of a communications problem works at both the how is the team communicating, but also how is the software communicating? Mm -hmm. Because if you're saying, oh, we don't want to do a monolith anymore. We want to go to microservices. Well, you've introduced this very complicated layer of communication into your system. And if your microservices aren't talking to each other, you have a communications breakdown. Right. And so, understanding how do you fix communication is, you know, fundamental. And so, do you find solutions to how to improve communications problems by just looking at software, or can you study human behavior and use those as an analogy of how do we improve uh, software communication? Hmm.
1: yeah and having your software talk to you in a way i mean this is what i look at it in terms of good test harnesses and things is that they tell you how your software is behaving you know that it's happy or it's sad or it has problems like all of those things come from good testing infrastructure and give you confidence that that your software is happy
2: yeah i think that goes to the idea of having observability baked in that even after you've deployed you know instead of just writing everything to a log message well why do we write it to a log well someone has to be able to read that when there's a problem and figure out why was there a problem yeah and having a system that's observable comes down to it has to communicate what's going on right now in a healthy state and in an unhealthy state yeah yeah
1: I, I, I know it's great and then operationally too you know wearing my it hat you know every time i've had a dev during a firefight, like we've had a senior developer sitting in with us as ops guys dealing with, you know, a recalcitrant website that we're rebooting servers and just trying to figure out why it's tipping over. They always come out of it the same way saying, wow, it's we need to build a better dashboard. Like you just can't see what's going on with the software.
0: Otherwise, it goes from recalcitrant to
1: moribund. <laughs> well, <laughs> but people just stop using it because you can't trust it. Right. On the other hand, performance is great on software that nobody uses. <laughs> and it's cheaper too. Yeah, takes fewer resources. It's amazing. Your Azure
0: bill will go way down.
1: <laughs> Turn it all off. <laughs> that's, that's dark, man. <laughs> <Jeez>. <laughs> but now I'm totally with you. It's like the the good communication with the with the software side, but on the people side. You know, if you show good communication skills with technical skills, you often end up being pushed into a PM's role too. someone who's going to interact with a customer and, and trying to help gather requirements, understand those
2: things. Uh, sometimes but I think it's helpful to not just have people feel like they're going to be pushed out. Mm-hmm. People are afraid sometimes of going up to that, that management track or that business analyst track. And if you think of communication as only human to human, um, then you start losing the people who are good communicators and you don't have them on your development team. And so you lose the ability for them to write good code that communicates with other developers or communicates with other services. Right.
1: And and definitely communication within a team, you know, when you want to bring new technologies to light, like all of those sorts of things, it makes such a difference how you present that stuff. Like those are useful skills. But I wonder, you know, we've all, I've heard this story over and over again, like the majority of, of developers that I talk to, even to this day, are not educated in software development per se software engineering degrees exist but they're still scarce there's more com-sci mm-hmm. degrees but most com-sci folks i talked to go you know that was not my principal set of inf- knowledge that's made the most difference on me but i've met a ton of great developers that were electrical engineers or even chemical engineers th- and that, that education really set them up for the kind of skills that make a difference
0: in software case in point my brother jay indeed went to school for naval architecture marine engineering and uh, found that he didn't want to do that. And there wasn't a lot of uh, opportunity where he thought there was. Became a developer. Now he's like senior, senior, senior developer.
2: Well, even myself, I, uh, I didn't want to go for a comp sci degree because I liked writing code and having fun with computers. And I didn't want to have that turn into a career because you didn't do stuff that you worked at and have fun. So that's going to ruin my thing I enjoyed. So I went for mechanical engineering. And then just as... You know, engineering goes in cycles and waves. When I graduated, there were no mechanical engineering jobs. Right, uh, and I got an internship in school at a software firm, and then that led to a career. And I've I at one point thought about going back into mechanical engineering and realized I just have a better knack for doing software. I like the ability to change things um, more fluidly as the design evolves, as opposed to you know you're engineering a bridge. You better get that right the first time. You can't get halfway out and refactor
0: it. Yeah. Yeah,
2: it, it gets expensive.
0: <laughs> there's another thing about you that is, uh, v- has made you very successful, and that is your your dedication to never stopping to learn, right? I mean, you, you're learning constantly, and you don't, uh, you know, everything I learned in school or I learned, you know, when I became a programmer, and that's it.
2: Right. I think I've seen um, developers who have, you know, 10 years of experience on their resume. And then you look at it and they have one year of experience 10 times. Right. That they mm. They came out and they had their skills and they just haven't kept up with it. And I think you can see good developers just recognize that software, the industry we're in, everything evolves very quickly. And it's impossible to keep up with everything. Like you kind of have to focus at some point, but you can still get a shape of what it looks like. But that's just to, you know, that's table stakes of just remaining relevant. If you mm. want to go into that from a good developer to a great engineer, you have to also start learning the other things besides just what's the latest flavor of C sharp or blazer or whatever's coming down the pike. Um, look around you and is there some other thing you can study that doesn't sound like it's related to software, but it turns out you can apply those um, concepts back to your day jobs doing software development.
1: right? And I, I'm almost loath to call those things soft skills too, because I think it undermines them.
2: I, I I saw someone refer to them as power skills, and I started using that when I can. Well, because it's, it's, they're the things that are harder to do, and they give you that leg up.
1: And they and they are amplifiers for everything else you've done, right? Uh, and of course, Microsoft's naming everything power right now, so you're you're certainly hip. <laughs> how how long before we see Power Blazer? Yeah, save me. <laughs> uh, but I also wonder if. If this is a transitory period, that we are moving towards more and more professional education around software development, that software engineering may end up being sort of a prerequisite as the body of work builds up, that we could start uh, seeing more places saying, if you don't have your PN, you haven't done your engineering degree in software, we we, we only have a lim- limited number of roles for you.
2: Yeah, I don't know. I think we're seeing a lot of people going through code camps. Mm-hmm. You know, Coding boot camps is a different way to get into yeah. the industry. Um, and I like I, I've met a few people who had a different career and then did a 180 and went into software. Yeah. And, and I, I think that shows so much more commitment. One, it shows that lifelong learning. They're committed to mm-hmm. learning some brand new skill, but also they bring with them all of that history. So again, if someone had a you know, bachelor's in English or history um, and then did something for 10 years in that, and then went to a boot camp, learned how to code you know that they're going to want to learn how to code different things and they may have just taken the web development boot camp yeah but that just gave them the skills in javascript and exposed them here's the structure of how you write code here's how you write for loops and here you have call you know things asynchronously they've got those general concepts and if you bring them in and say hey we don't do that here we don't use angular we're on react great they they've already shown that they spent dedicated amount of time learning something new they are going to be able to learn the next new thing yeah that much easier yeah, uh, yeah
1: and i yeah i don't have a huge problem with boot camps but i don't you know you're certainly not going to call them an engineer coming compared to a four-year engineering discipline and right, right. and i talk about the four-year engineering discipline because built into that are things like uh, our logic and you know the ph- the philosophies uh, our ethics Uh, are more of the liberal arts skills, right? It's not a a four-year engineering degree is not just hard science all the time.
2: Right. And when I went through, uh, again, I've got 20 years of professional experience to do the math. It was a while ago. They were just coming around to saying, our engineers are graduating. They have all the chops. They can do the work, but no one can work with them. Right. And from freshman year through senior year, we started having these projects that you had to present. And you had to, you know, meet in front of a panel that was professors and say, okay, they'd evaluate you just like you do in a design review yes. when you get into the real world. You had to stand up in front of the class and practice giving a presentation because you will have to do that in your real world. Yeah, I, I like more of those mm-hmm.
1: real world ties. I've also come to appreciate that I have no problem with a developer who's latched on to a set of technologies and has built good stuff for his employer for an extended period of time and Uh, is not particularly keen in learning new things. Like, that's the set of skills they know. They enjoy those skills. That's their job. Right. Uh, If you pick the right stack, because those stacks also go
2: away. Yeah. Yeah, you need the COBOL guys to come back, right?
1: Well, the COBOL guys can't retire, right? Everyone (laughs) I meet is in their 60s, is making more money now than they ever did in the previous years. And it's like, I'm stupid to retire, but I'd like to. The Mm -hmm. fun part is that the dynamic inside of the office is very much a, how do we let these guys retire? Like how do we yeah. get off of needing new cobalt code on a routine basis, which is very interesting.
0: Cobaltcamp.com.
2: <laughs> go, go reserve that now.
0: Yeah. Go reserve that
2: pa- power cobalt. You heard yeah. it here first. Power
0: cobalt.
1: <laughs>
2: Cause cobalt.net is so passe. Yeah. Right. No, I think, um, there's, I, I've worked with a lot of different engineers. So I've seen, um, you know, lots of different personalities and you can put people in stereotypes. Um, One that was fun one day, so a few years ago, uh, Hamilton, the musical, went on tour, and it came to Denver, and Uh they announced it a year or six months in advance, and everyone in the office bifurcated into two groups. Those of us who were trying to figure out, how do I get tickets? What's the rules for the lottery and everything? And then the other Hmm. half didn't care one bit about the musical. right? And... Well, I was on the first camp, if you couldn't tell. But one guy I yeah. stand next to said, I, I just don't get musicals. People don't behave like that in real life. They don't spontaneously break into song and dance. Hey, and, man, and I said, well, for yourself. Wouldn't it be cool if they did? <laughs> yeah, but, but the point is, it's not meant to be reality. No. They, they're trying to tell a story and convey as much emotion as they can. And their constraints are, you've got an audience seated down for two hours how do you get them engaged as quickly as possible and, and make that connection with the story you're trying to tell? And yeah. music has been around for thousands of years as a way to help people. You know, It activates different parts of your brain. It gets you more engaged. And so I told him that music is like the data compression algorithm for the theater. You have limited bandwidth. You're trying to get your story across as much as possible. And then I said yeah. that the, the code that you write like every day he sits down and writes C-sharp or JavaScript. I'm like No one talks like that in real life either. <laughs> <laughs> like, <laughs> and, and so you are a writer. You're not Stephen King writing a novel, but but you are a writer. Mm-hmm. And in reality, what you're writing is closer to poetry than prose. Uh, and so I know you had, was it Dylan Beatty on a while ago talking about rock star developers? Yes.
0: Oh, God, that was I, great. I
2: I think we should have come out with a new term called code poet, and that recruiters should start looking for those people, because that's what you're doing, is you are writing poetry. You have a very tight syntax and grammar you're allowed to use to get your, your message across.
0: Richard, I feel like Thomas is speaking directly to me. <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> what you, I don't know what you're talking uh, about. I often break out in song while I'm writing code. I, I know you do. Yeah. that's 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 my reality.
2: My, my coworkers are grateful that I don't break into song, so that wouldn't be for anyone.
0: Yeah, some
1: songs are even easier to listen to than others, too.
2: I think that that whole idea of writing and being a writer goes back to one of the most important things you learn in English Composition One Hundred and One, and that's know your audience. That right. whenever you're writing something, you need to know who you are writing it for. And that applies for your. Freshman term paper, it applies for your senior thesis, and it applies when you're writing code. Um, who are you who's your audience that you're writing that code for? And when you're writing code, you have two audiences. You have the compiler itself and you have other developers who have to read that. And one of those two audiences is very opinionated and yells at you if you're ever wrong. So <laughs> or, who do we tend to Or favor If they our believe you're wrong. Mm. Right. I don't understand what you're saying. Tell me a different way. Right. And we tend to bias how we write towards the computer. And if you recognize that the more important audience is the developer who's going to come and read your code later and maintain it, who very likely might be you. Like I've written the code, come back three months and said, who's the idiot who wrote this? And looked at the git commit and realized I'm the idiot who wrote that. And I don't understand it. (laughs) Yep. But, But yeah, recognize that you are writing for an audience and pay attention to what they need to say or what they need to understand.
1: Well, and and the compiler is like the least interesting audience of the bunch. Right. And yet has very strong opinions. Very strong opinions. Yes. And Thomas, I'm going to interrupt for one moment for this very important message.
0: Are you interested in learning Python but hesitant to make the jump because you're already proficient at C-sharp and .NET? I know how that feels. When learning a new programming language, you go from expert to newbie all over again. But it doesn't have to be that way with Python. The folks over at Talk Python Training have created the perfect bridge for you. A nine-hour online course that walks you through all the major parts of C# and .NET and builds out the Python equivalent with you. It covers the language, the web frameworks, data science toolkits, and much more. So if you've been wanting to learn Python but hate the idea of starting over, don't make the jump with TalkPython's Python for the .NET developer course at talkpython.netrocks.com. And we're back.
1: This is Richard Campbell. That's Carl Franklin. It's .NET Rocks. And we're talking to our friend Thomas Betts about the things that go into the great education of a developer. And and I'm, I'm worried that we're focused so much on Your education coming into a career as opposed to your education once you're in a career.
2: Yeah. I think you're it goes to that idea of a lifelong learning approach that recognizing you don't know everything. Um and some people deal with this in different ways. I know this is one of the main reasons people have imposter syndrome, myself included, Mm -hmm. is I don't know how to do that thing. Um and sometimes you respond to that by compensating and say, Well, I'm gonna go off and learn that thing so I can do Mm -hmm. it better. Yep. But, and
1: it's easier, it's always easier to talk in terms of technologies I don't know, as opposed to team leadership skills, communication skills, writing
2: skills. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, we talked about earlier the distinction between STEM subjects and liberal arts subjects or whatever. Power uh, subjects. The power subjects. <laughs> the, I think some people, like, I liked math in school because it had a right and wrong answer. Like you did the math homework and you got the right answer. Hmm. I wrote my English paper. There wasn't a right answer. Yeah. And that's a hard concept, especially for people who lean towards software development to, you know, they don't like the gray area. And so sometimes they just completely push it aside and say, I'm going to leave that to other people. Um, But that's more likely what you're going to be dealing with in most of your life is the gray area. Uh, The answer to any good engineering question is always it depends. Yes. Right. It depends on what, how do you analyze what it depends on? How do you come up with the right answer or the best possible answer or the answers that you can choose from based on what you have?
0: Yeah. Yeah. There's nothing worse than writing a a paper on a story or a book that you've read, you know, for class. And you, while you're writing it, you're like, Oh, this all makes sense. This is like perfect. You know, I get it. And you hand it in and it's like, F, you missed the point completely, you know, and you're just like, okay, what was the point? Yeah. Sorry, not going to tell you.
1: Yeah, I also think I like the mechanical parts of writing too. Like I, I'm a pretty good writer. I have a lot of experience, but I do like Grammarly, the tool, mm-hmm. just because yeah. it constantly reminds me of those verbal ticks, those written ticks that I have
0: and that, uh, and, and, you know, insist that I remove them. I have a biological version of that. It's called my wife. Right. Yeah. We can't watch any kind of uh, show together without every time somebody uses an adjective form of a word instead of an adverb, I get a, a jab in my side, and I got to go Lee. <laughs> <laughs> Lee. <laughs> that came. That came out perfect. Jab. Lee. Lee. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Now, now, I'm going to be checking everything I say for the rest of the show. Nice. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah, I I, I I, do appreciate
1: tools that can help you with that. And same with sharing, you know, not sending important emails right away, passing them over to a friend and say, this." how does this come across to you? You know, yep. that, that, that kind of behavior just is a good behavior. There's no different than getting a code review.
2: Right. And I think it's also, so the idea of writing an English term paper sounds like a very academic thing to do. More often, when you're writing something in a work setting, it will be an email, or maybe you're giving a presentation, or maybe you're turning in a report. Um, and sometimes it comes down to, well, what's the best format that I should be using? Is this a you know, short email, five sentences? Is it an hour-long PowerPoint presentation? Do I have charts and graphs? Uh, comes back to the idea of know your audience. Who are you talking to? How much time do they have? Why are you presenting the information? What do you expect them to give to you? So if you want to show them, here's the research that I did. I need you to help make a decision. You need to give them the best presentation that makes them, helps them make that decision. Mm-hmm. So you know, Carl said the the teacher gave him an F on the homework. Well, did you not understand the book, or do you not understand the assignment? And I think that not understanding the assignment happens a lot. That people say i didn't get what i mean
0: yep that was it yeah you know uh, we were talking about um grammarly richard you were talking about it and Mm -hmm. uh, i think of all the technologies that have replaced just you know uh, educational aspects that we've learned as we came up through school and all of this you know grammar is one of them spell check before that but how it translates also into into code you know, with, um, statement completion and all of that stuff. Like we have all these technologies that we lean on that make us more productive, but yet if you get an email from somebody and it's grammatically incorrect and, you know, things are on all caps or they're not capitalized correctly, you know, you, you, you do have, that does give you an opinion of them, right? Yes. Like this person didn't take the time to care carefully, uh, present what it is that they're trying to say in a, in a manner that reflects well on them. Yeah. Same as, you know, people who don't use correct grammar in real life, but at at a certain point, what, what happens when, you know, the, the people who know better are gone and, you know, the, the younger generation that has come up with texting and all of that stuff, language is like a totally different thing for them. Yeah, you know, like they don't really care about spelling because uh, spell checker will, you know. So they don't. It, I, I'm making a broad generalization. Mm-hmm. These are things I've noticed in, you know, my kids, for example. Like they're less focused on that stuff that we took a lot of care in learning, because they can be m- more productive if they let the technology do some of that
1: for them. Yeah, I just don't know if they're communicating as well as they can. Right? They, the number of times I had get that line you know what I mean? And like, I don't know that yeah. I do. You right. know, there's a bunch of letters here. Yeah.
2: Well, I think, you know, the letters, you move this into, you know, a different setting, that's similar to people using acronyms. Mm-hmm. Software, every company I've worked in has their own suite of acronyms. Sure. You know, I was in yeah. defense. They have a whole set. Oh, and I so you have these little shorthands for everything. And I think you also have that divide of there's the engineer speak and the other humans. And it's from <laughs> office space, right? The guy that took the requirements. I'm a people person. Right. I give them to the engineers. Um, <laughs> and how do you you know, cross that divide? And so I think we tend to, as engineers, we'd like to sound smart sometimes by using technical words. Um, or like, oh, we're going to have asynchronous message-driven communication. And someone on the other side of the table, their eyes gloss over. And like, I don't understand what you're talking about. But if you say, right. well, let's go into Starbucks, I'm going to order a coffee and you walk up and you place your order and then you walk away and they mm. write your name and your order on the side of a cup and set it down in a queue. It sits in a line, someone picks it up, reads the message, makes your coffee, and then raises an event to say the coffee is delivered. Well, yeah, I totally understand that. Well, that's that's how we're going to make our microservices work. Oh, I get that. So. How do you find the the ways to talk to your audience in terms they'll understand instead of just throwing up acronyms and and techno babble?
0: Yep. And it's fun. It's fun to find those real life examples of what we're doing uh, in technology. Sure. It's a lot of fun. And you, I love it when the light bulb goes off too.
1: Yeah. And we have so much growth, right? There's so many rooms to try new things. Like the, you're so far from locked in in a job in software.
2: Hmm right and and a lot of people especially if you start right out of college um you don't know where you're going to be in 10 15 20 years um don't worry. i love that none of us know no i don't know what i'm going to do when i grow up yeah um but and that goes to that idea of lifelong learning that if you have the curiosity that i think is what gets a lot of people at least in our generation into this like you know you'd the three of us didn't go through a rigorous STEM education because that just wasn't a thing. But we no. got involved with computers. Um, and I think some of that still happens. But we're trying to get more kids to see what they can do with computers. Um, yeah. And I also, there's opportunities to be mentors and help grow the next generation.
1: I also think we're all of a generation that saw the personal computer come to life. Right. You talk about your TI-99, the TRC, Like well, Those are all the beginning of personal computers. The younger generations have always had computers. If you've lived your whole life with a smartphone, like, you've always had a very powerful personal computer in your hands. And you just value it differently. Like, your relationship to technology is fundamentally different. I think that this older generation that are immigrants to this technology are far more excited about it than someone who's lived with it their whole lives. Right.
2: Right. Yeah, I remember taking a school field trip when I was, I don't know, eight or nine years old. Um, to computer lab at SDSU or UCSD and they had a cray and I remember you could sit down on it because it was a piece of furniture right. it was a room it had a bench right there was a bench that, you know like this is the supercomputer yeah and and they're talking about how long programs run and all of that stuff is a, a fraction of what you have in a smartphone now
1: yeah. That's the old gag. I, I do this on a, a talk all the time. I compare the, the Cray 2 and the uh, iPad 2 as basically having the same gigaflops. Right. Right. And, but it's 26 years apart. One was millions of dollars. The other one's less than a grand. Like, in, you know, one solved equations for nuclear explosions. The other one plays Candy Crush. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Would you like to play a game? Yeah. But, it, it you know, it, that's the other aspect of this industry that I think is somewhat unique is that because we are changing as rapidly as we are, because Moore's law continues to apply, A, there's infinite, this massive amount of growth. It's not infinite. Like, we are are in the decade that we'll see the end of Moore's law, right? Right. I mean, we're just plain old run out of atoms. Like, we're no longer going to keep stepping down size for much longer. Somewhere in the three to five nanometer range, like, that's it. You're down to a couple of dozen atoms, and they're just not that cooperative anymore. But uh, and other things will improve. Like I don't think it's the end of the end of our jobs by any stretch of the imagination. But we uh, have had the luxury of riding through several decades where we just kept getting more, and now it's we're going to get more efficient. And I also, I mean, I wonder if this younger generation that's not that wild about technology, they, they you know not that excited about it, is the right generation for that maturation. You think maybe it'll skip a generation? No, I don't think. I mean, definitely we had an impact. The dot-com bust impacted a generation of kids who then saw computing as a lie, right? That this isn't a career. A whole bunch of stuff went wrong. And so you've got this gap. I've certainly seen the gap where there's a group of people who are just not interested. You know, I'm from old enough that I used to do talks about how much fun it was to write games at a company like Electronic Arts. Now Electronic Arts is like makes oracle look friendly right like they're one of the worst <laughs> companies you could possibly work for you know and that's an interesting set of changes and the, and, the, and by the way not wrong right like those the, these companies are badly behaved and there's expectations definitely are changing around all of that but you know just cuz we're not of that generation doesn't mean these folks are the wrong folks for this they're they're different than us and they're probably the right people at the right time they're certainly what we've got right and what's going to make a difference and their uh, relationship with technology is i think going to be very positive for actually maturing our industry i think we've been stuck in a kind of childlike wonder period where anybody with some enthusiasm maybe it took a 16 week boot camp maybe it just got a plural site subscription and now you know you're in a career uh, now it seems like we're in a shape where in the next decade or so This is really going to be a profession and we may not be qualified.
2: Hmm. Yeah, I think you have to ask what is it that takes you getting to that level of being a professional Mm -hmm. as opposed to it's just my job. Yeah.
1: Well, and it's, but at the same time, you know, we know that lawyers and doctors are professionals, but I've certainly met both lawyers and doctors. Clearly, it's their job. Like they yeah. may at one point had passion around this, but they ended up in a place where this pays extremely well. And I'm a, uh, a work to liver type, right? It just, I, I, I take my salary and my joy is elsewhere, not
2: my career. Uh, I mean, right. I think it's important not to mm. um, judge each other because I, especially if you look at Twitter, which is a horrible place to you know study society. Yeah. But if you look there, you'll see the, The pendulum swing back and forth from everyone should be a remote employee to no one should be a remote employee to everyone should have a side hustle to you know your life should be more than just writing code right and I think the important thing is find what you're curious about and go after it study something and if there's something that isn't right in your wheelhouse but you're curious take a class go take a photography class the community college or something like that take a cooking class. Just to, you know, keep your brain engaged and learn something new. Does it have to apply back to your job and your profession? No. Um, But ultimately, everything does. You are a whole person.
1: And any skill and exercise you do has some effect on every other skill and effort that you do.
2: Right. Uh, And I think, you know, going to, you mentioned I've written a few comments into the show. Uh, This started with, I just had a commute and, you know, wanted to put on my headphones while I was riding the train. And podcasts were now a thing. Um, and it was just a way to, you know, have a little bit new knowledge coming into my ear every day. And it was easy. There was a very, very low barrier to entry to Mm -hmm. starting to listen to podcasts, right? Um, and over the years, sometimes you'd hear something and say, that was really interesting. I want to know more. That's why I wrote a letter in. Um, and that's kind of led me to finding other opportunities like. I think you've had guests on the show talk about speaking at user groups for the first time. And so I thought about speaking. There was a user group that put out a call for speakers. Like, oh, we're having this event. Um, on I think it was like SQL Server 2008 came out. Like, We need people who are willing to sign up and give a presentation. And so I gave a 15-minute presentation about uh, geographic data types in SQL Server. Nice. I had never, no idea about that before. It was fascinating. I learned right. something. I talked something to somebody else. Um, and that's kind of been those little stepping stones that I've found these ways over the years of um, either in my day job, just talking to people or going to a group or going to a conference and speaking to share more knowledge with other people. And finding that's a really enjoyable way to give back. And I learn a lot from it.
1: Mm-hmm. Hmm. Learn, learning to teach is a powerful uh, effort. It makes it it a it huge difference. Everybody benefits from that.
0: Sure is. Right. It's a better, great way to learn, too. Well, Thomas, what's next for you? What do you, What's the thing in your inbox you're most looking forward to? Uh,
2: so I think you mentioned in my bio that I'm uh, I'm an author for InfoQ. If people don't know <laughs> InfoQ, they can find me online. Uh, it's mm. a an, uh, news and information website for software professionals. I've uh, been doing that for the last three or four years. And uh, coming up in the first week of March, I am one of the track hosts for QCon London. Um, I'll be hosting the Future of the API. Uh, talking about uh, gRPC, GraphQL, um, what's new for REST. So we're looking forward to that, have some fantastic guests lined up. Um, In fact, if people um, contact me on Twitter, I have uh, an offer code that'll save them 75 pounds off the registration price. So... Awesome. Awesome.
0: All right, Thomas. Well, it's been great talking to you. And thanks very much for finally making it on our show. And we'll try to have you back more often.
2: Yeah, another 700 shows. I'll be back.
0: All right. Sounds good. (laughs) (laughs) And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks.